0: It's really good to see you all. There's a lot of new faces in this room. I want to thank y'all for being a part of our class tonight. It's always been my privilege and joy to be able to come here and share God's truth with you. Um, For those of you who do not know me, my name is Ronnie uh, Ryan Nichols. Uh, I I attend a church in Effingham, Redeemer Baptist Church. Um, I've been a chaplain for about eight years at a a children's and uh, adult drug and alcohol behavioral center. So I've worked with a lot of people struggling with addiction. Um, I also struggled with addiction in my life at one time, but through the grace of God, he set me free from from that bondage and that sin. And so one of the things that he's done for me is he's given me the privilege and joy of being able to come and share his grace and love with others. He gave it to me. I remember one time as a young man, I was standing on a beach in Costa Rica saying, Oh God, if you want me to be a missionary, I'll I'll do it. I'll do whatever you ask me. I'll, I'll come here to Costa Rica and preach the gospel. I'll go wherever you send me. And then uh, later on, I got back home after that mission trip and fell into sin and self and collapsed and crushed my life, uh, destroyed my testimony, and uh, really began to live for self instead of God. And uh, I wound up in a behavioral clinic myself, uh, struggling with addiction and struggling with uh, rebellion and sin. And God set me free from that. And now He has made me a missionary. But it wasn't to some extravagant place (laughs) like Bolivia or uh, Belarus or, or Egypt or anywhere like that. It was right in my hometown of Savannah. And uh, now He's given me the grace and the the joy and the privilege of being able to to be a missionary for Him, to tell others what His grace and His gospel can do for those of us who are still bound up in sin and slavery. So He has the power to set us free. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on that cross, to be buried in a grave and raised three days later, to prove that He has that power. And for those of us who believe on Him, we will not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the gospel. And So I come here tonight to share the gospel with you the gospel is the good news. Um, so let's go ahead um, and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our patch. We're going to start a little bit in the book of Romans tonight. We're going to start in Romans chapter 9, the last verse of Romans chapter 9, and then we're going to jump into the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 10 tonight. Before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer and ask God to bless our time together. <clears throat> Most gracious Heavenly Father, you are a loving God. You loved us, and you love us, and you sent your Son Jesus to claim us in that love. And save us in that love and preserve us and keep us in that love to shield us and protect us in that love. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all of the many blessings that you pour in our lives, for um, giving us uh, dry and warm clothes on our backs, a little bit of food in our belly and a hope in our hearts. We thank you for all of the many blessings you pour on our lives. But most importantly, we thank you for your promises because they never fail. And so, Lord Jesus, as we begin to open up your word, as we begin to open your promises, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open our ears, our minds, and our lives to those promises. Help us to receive those promises. Help us to believe those promises, help us to trust those promises, and give us the strength and the willingness to go and share those promises with others. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So does anybody in this room know what the term treasury of merits is? Has anybody ever heard of that term before, the treasury of merits? Anybody heard of that? All right. I know Tony's a Roman Catholic. Do I have anybody else in here that's a Roman Catholic? Okay, Roman Catholic. Alright, so you should be familiar with something known as the Treasury of Merits as being a Roman Catholic. And the the Treasury of Merits is a doctrine of the Catholic Church that says that there were certain saints who lived super righteous lives. They literally lived lives that were over and above the righteousness that they needed to get into heaven. So between these super saints and between them and the work of Christ on the cross, when Jesus went and died on the cross, He earned enough merit to save every person that's ever lived. And now there's this big giant box called the treasury of merit. It's the righteousness that people need to get to heaven. You have to be as righteous as God to get to heaven. And the Bible tells us that there are none of us in here righteous, no, not one. Alright? So what has to happen is I don't have the righteousness. I don't have the merit to get to heaven. I can't earn my way to heaven on my own. So I need someone to do it for me. The Catholic doctrine of the treasure of merit says that the Pope has the keys to this box. And that through prayer and through penance, penance being things that we do to make up for our wrongs, through prayer and penance, the treasury of merits box is open and some of those extra credit righteousness that was earned by others is now given to you. Right? Well, the one problem with that concept is, is that you have to merit the merit. What do I mean by that? It's something that you do. Your prayer or you giving some money to the church or you helping a little lady across the road or you feeding somebody hungry in your neighborhood or you not cussing and drinking and smoking. you giving up something that's sinful in your life so that you can get some of that merit. So in reality, the concept is you are meriting your merit. What What does the word merit mean? What does that mean? To merit something. If you're in the Boy Scouts, you got merit badges. What is the merit badge?
1: It's,
0: it's something you earn. That's exactly right. Good. All right. Well, in the 16, 17, uh, 1600s, uh, a group of Protestants come along. These reformers, and they brought about this concept, uh, a concept of uh, the five solas, five sola meaning alone. And so. The Protestants protested against the Catholic Church. Y'all remember Martin Luther and John Calvin and all of those guys in history. And basically what they said is, no, Rome has got it wrong. It is by faith alone that we are saved. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. So it's sola gratia, sola fide. That's faith and grace. It's sola Christos. It's by Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. It's for the sola dea gloria, the glory of God alone that we are saved. And what is the other one? Faith. It is by Scripture alone that we know that salvation. Sola scriptura. So the five solas of the Reformation, these guys came along and they said, All right, here are five solo things that give us salvation. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. It is through faith alone that we are saved. It is through grace alone that we are saved. It is through the Scriptures alone that we are saved. And it is to the glory of God alone that we are saved. And in all five of those solos, all five of those things are things that God has done for us. You see? Okay. So if you go to the book of Ephesians, I told you we we're going to be in Romans. Let's go to Ephesians first and we'll look there and then we'll be in that Romans 9 passage. But look in the Ephesians. This is a verse that I'm sure that many of the teachers that have come here have shared these verses with you. But let's look again in Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 10. All right. It says this, you were dead, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, verses 1-10. through 10. I'll, I'll wait just a second for you to find out. Ephesians 2, 1-10. through 10. And Paul writes this. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Alright, so a couple of things he tell, Paul's telling us right away. Number one, we were dead. What does a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. A dead person stinks and rots. That's it. They don't breathe. They don't laugh. They don't respond to your pleas or your prayers. You were dead in trespass and sin. Alright? What does the Bible tell us? The wages of sin is death. What did Jesus tell Adam and Eve? If you sin, you will surely die. So the moment that you sin is the moment that you have death upon you. You are spiritually dead. But then it says you were dead and trespassed sin and then you formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of Jesus. So you are the walking dead. And you all watch zombie movies, right? What does it mean? It means that your heart was stoned. Your will, your spirit, everything about you was literally dead. And you were walking according to the course of this world. Well, y'all study the book of Revelation here a lot. What is the eventual course of this world going to lead to? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be burnt up in fire. Right? And a fervent heat. The elements are going to melt. Alright, so why is God going to destroy the earth? Because it's cursed by sin. Why is God going to destroy all sinners? Because they are dead in their trespasses and sin. They are walking according to the course of this world. Walking according to the... Uh, following the Spirit... That is now working in the sons of disobedience. What is that spirit's name? An, or an Antichrist, right? The spirit of Antichrist. So, you're dead. You're the walking dead. What does a dead person do? Nothing. They die and they stink. Okay? And then it says this Among them too, we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. So, look what it says. Among whom we too formerly walked, so that was describing my life before God regenerated me, before God saved me. That was me. I was dead in trespass sin. I was doing exactly what my free will told me to do. My free will. You know what my free will tells me to do before I'm regenerated? Sin, rebel against God. That's all I'm capable of. I am. I. I am. I can do nothing but do that which is pleasing to me. Even the good things that I do are for my glory and my good. Even me helping my neighbor out or doing kind deeds is usually so that I can get some attention or some pay or some reciprocation of my own. You see? All of my thoughts and intents are on me. Dead and trespassed sin, walking forward to the world. And it says, by nature we were children of wrath. So our, our, our nature was that we were children of wrath. What does that mean? God's wrath was hanging over our heads.
1: Sure.
0: Why? Because we're sinners. And what does God think of sin? He hates it. Right? How many of y'all have heard the term, God loves the sinner but hates sin? Right? Well, i got news for you. That can be true in one sense. But it is not sin that God sends to hell. It's sinners. And his wrath is hanging over our head because we're dead in trespasses and we're walking according to the course of this world. We're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in son the sons of disobedience. And that was me. But look what it says in three. It's very important. To see, we were all formerly lived this way. So if I was formerly living that way, what does it tell me? That means you are. There's been a change. Yeah. Something's happened. And if you look at verse four, you'll see that something that happened. Anytime you're in the New Testament and you come across the words, but God, there's always good news after that. So the first three verses describe me. But God, Mm -hmm. who was rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So what did God do in His grace? He saved us. He reached down into a world full of people who deserve death and hell. How many people on the face of the earth, how many sons of Adam deserve hell? Everyone. Everyone. So God has condemned the whole world to wrath and judgment. But in His grace, He reaches down into a world full of people who deserve death and hell and says, No, I love you too much to let you keep living that way. And He gives us life. Amen. I was dead. I was dead. He gives me life. Amen. If you want to think of the picture of Lazarus in the tomb, when Jesus called him out, He said, Lazarus, come forth. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, why didn't He just say, come forth? Because if He had said that, everyone in that whole graveyard would have come out of the grave. There was a specific call to a specific man that said, come out of that dead life and live. He spoke to Lazarus, alone, and Lazarus came out of the grave. And it wasn't Lazarus' choice it was God's grace and call on his life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You see how that works? Okay. Now, look what it says next. He raised us up with him, he seated us with him in a heavenly place in Christ Jesus. So, the position of a child of God is that we are already seated with him heaven. Positionally, we are already inherited the inheritance. Positionally, we have. And look what he says. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right. And this is where this is important. Look in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of work so that no one can boast. Okay. So that no one. What does it mean to boast? Brag. All right. Now watch. For it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And it is a gift of God. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Three things. By grace, that's God's unmerited favor. You have been saved, that's the eternal promise, through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what is the it he's talking about? You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Wait, I, if you were in the class last month and you were listening, you'll know what the it is. What is the it? How many of y'all say it's great? Read it again. Let's look at it really close. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God.
1: Faith. Your faith.
0: You say faith. Who said grace. salvation? Yes, I say grace. You say grace. You say salvation. You say faith. All, all three of y'all have something some different. What is it? What is the it? Grace. Well, what if it's all three? It is. Yeah. What if your salvation is a gift from God? It is, by the way. It is. What if grace is a gift from God? It is. What if the faith that you have... What is faith? Huh? Believing okay, in the heavens, things that are not seen. Okay, faith the things hoped for us, those things not seen, right? That's the Hebrew pattern. But what is faith? Give me a one-word definition of faith. Trust. That's a good one. Belief. Faith, faith, trust, belief. So your ability to believe in God came from God. Is a gift from God. Lest anyone should what? Boast. Uh, Boast. Alright, so now here's the point of our class tonight. Why are you saved?
1: Because God saved saved
0: us. He saved me. Alright. Now, one of our natural default positions is this. Because when I was a little kid, the preacher was preaching on hell, and I ran forward and I asked Jesus into my heart. That's why I'm saved. You see, the problem with that is I'm boasting. In a way, what I'm saying is I'm better than those people that are not saved. Because I responded to His calling of me. But if I realize, if I can come to the realization that the call on my life, the literal desire in my heart to want to serve Him and obey Him and trust Him and believe Him is all from Him, then I can't brag about it. And you know what else is super duper cool about that? I won't lose it either. If it's my, if it's for me, if it's because I believed, then what happens when I don't believe? You lose it. Do you? How many of y'all in this room think that Christians struggle with with assurance sometimes? You better believe it. Right. That's not. A, that's a play on words. You better believe it. We struggle with assurance. And the reason that we struggle with assurance, if there's a time in your life where you're doubting your salvation, there's one of two things. Number one, it could be that you're not saved. What did Peter say? Studied, uh, Paul said, study to show yourself approved." What did Peter say? Test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. So if there's doubts, it may be because you're not a believer and God is still drawing you to Him. You see? But more often than not, our doubts come because we are putting our trust in something that we are doing instead of something that God has done. Okay? The law says do this. Jesus said it is finished. The law says do or don't do that. Jesus said it's done. So my faith is in what He has done, not what I am doing. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Alright, now watch this. I want to give you a quote from a guy named Joel Beakey. Listen to what this says. Too many Christians live in constant despondency. What does it mean to be despondent? Who said it? I didn't understand you. I'm, I'm about death. What despondent. What does it mean to be despondent? To Unresponsive, sad, despairing, oh. without hope. All right? Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm really deaf. I just had a hard time hearing. All right. Too many Christians live in constant despondency because they cannot distinguish between the rock on which they stand and the faith by which they stand on the rock. Let me say that again. Too many Christians live in constant despondency because they cannot distinguish between the rock on which they stand and the faith by which they stand on the rock. What's that? Alright, this is what it means. Faith is not our rock. Christ is our rock. Too many of us have a problem distinguishing between our faith and who our faith is in. If my salvation is based on my faith, my faith, then who am I depending on? So, so but if my faith is in the one who said it is finished, who am I depending on? Good. So who is my trust in in that situation? All right. So... Going back to the treasury of merits, if you think about that, what it's saying is, is that we as Christians have earned righteousness with God. Now, what is the problem with that statement? The Bible says there are none righteous, no not one. What did it say? Even at our works are as what? Filthy rags. rags to God. Even your best efforts, even the best that you can do is nowhere near the standard of God's perfect expectation. Now, how do we know God's perfect expectation? How do we know what is His will? How do I know that? How do I know what He wants? And what, I'm, what is required of me? What I'm supposed to do? Okay. We are supposed to obey, but what are we supposed to obey? Our feelings? His voice, his voice the Word. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I want you to grasp this distinction. There was a guy named Martin Luther. I got any Lutherans in here? Anybody Lutheran in There was a guy named Martin Luther. And one of the things that he loved to do is draw a definitive line between law and gospel. There is a definite distinguishment between the law and the gospel. The law says do, the gospel says done. But the law is good because the law is the very will of God. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? If you love me, obey obey my commandments. Mm -hmm. That's His will. His will for you is to be obedient to Him. Don't have any other gods. Don't take His name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Don't make any idols, images, or statues and bow down and worship them. Don't Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't cuss. Right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't kill. Alright, so remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler? He said, What must I do? That's law to inherit eternal life. Even the centurion, when, when he was shook to his core, he screamed out to Paul and said, What must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So, what is it that we do? We believe. We believe, but let me give you another quote. If we make out, and this is my quote, not somebody else's. I didn't steal this from somebody. If we make our faith a work that saves, we don't have saving faith. If we make, or I'm sorry, if we make our faith a work that saves us, we do not have saving faith. Faith is not a work. In other words, faith is not of the law. Faith is of the Gospel. Because it is a gift from God. Alright? So, if I say all I have to do is believe, I'm saved. Well, James tells us that the devils in hell believe in God and tremble in fear. But they're not saved. So, the true faith that is comes to us the true faith that saves is not something that we've done it's something that God has given to us so now here's what has happened now my faith is not descriptive of my salvation or my faith is not prescriptive of my salvation it's descriptive of my salvation we've got sickness going on in the house right now maybe you had to go to the doctor and get a prescription what is a prescription prescription it's something that's given to you to treat you for something, right? All right. So, faith is not the prescription to salvation. Faith is a description of salvation. Makes sense. You see, faith is not something you do to be saved. Faith is something that you do when you are saved. Because
1: we believe we keep you know, we keep
0: and because we have faith, because we trust Him, now His laws are pleasing to us and we're more, we're able and more willing because to we love him. because we love Him. Because He's changed our heart and put His love in us. His will now lives in me in the presence of His Holy Spirit. Now, do I live a perfect life now? No. I sin every day. The difference in me today and the me 20 years ago when I was not saved is that now I struggle with my sin. You don't keep before I embraced them, mm-hmm. yeah, I so. mm-hmm. yes, you know, I ran to my addictions. That was my God. Mm-hmm. That was my idol. That was what I bowed down and worshiped. It was what was most important to me. It was more important than my brother and my sister and my mother. Right? That's what Jesus said. Who are my brothers? If they don't want to hear my word and obey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the reality is, is that there are all kinds of false gods out there that we can become addicted to. Sure. And one of the greatest idols out there is the idol of I.
1: Allah?
0: I. I, your I. Me. Oh, oh it starts God. with I Yeah, it starts with I. I and so it. so think about it. Lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace through faith that is a gift God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, what is <coughs> boasting about? Look at me. But what does the true child of God say? Look at him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He points us to Christ, not to ourselves and not to the world around us. He points us to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, so think about that. Not of works lest any man should boast. So, I ask you again. Are you a born-again, blood-bought believer? Are you a child of God? And I ask you now, why? And the moment that you insert I in your answer is the moment that you have fallen from grace. Huh? Because He died on the cross. He paid for my sins. He lived a life that I could not live, a righteous life that was good enough to get to heaven. He's the only person who's ever done it. He died and took the death I deserve so that I could have a life I could never earn. And He, through His Holy Spirit, allowed me to hear His Word. He drew me to Him. He gave me a new heart. He gave me faith. He gave me salvation. Right, that part. You see? Yes. Now, in what what did that do? I, where in that in whole statement I just gave you? Can I books? No, on that. So, uh, Spurgeon, one of the a famous preachers, said it this way. He said, "The only thing that you did." for your salvation is commit the sins that required the right. That's the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sins that you committed that require your need for salvation. Hmm. The moment I begin to think it's something that I'm doing is the moment that I fall from grace. Y'all heard that term before, falling from grace. Yeah. But, well, a lot of people will preach to you and they will say, um, well in Hebrews it says you have fallen from grace or Galatians you have fallen from grace well what it really means to fall from grace grace is a gift of God to fall from grace means to not depend upon God but to depend on me Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's what it means to fall from grace it means to be doing something where I'm dependent on me for my salvation or my better and not him and that's where we get to this Romans passage I want to share with you. All right, so let's go to Romans chapter nine and look at the last verse of uh, chapter nine, and then we're going to look at the first thirteen verses of chapter ten. So Romans nine thirty-three says this: Just as it is written, "Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense; and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." All right, what book is that coming from? Well, Paul's writing the book of Romans but he's quoting an Old Testament passage does somebody have a little a little sidebar there that tells you where where the quote's coming from no, I think it's coming from Isaiah but okay well, Isaiah what 55, 55 10 or something okay. Okay, so Paul is using something that was written about 700 years before Jesus was ever born to remind us that a promise had been made. And what was the promise to the Jewish people? I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So God is going to plant this stone. And if you believe in Him, the stone, the rock, you will not be disappointed. But there are many who will stumble and fall. You believe on Him, and that rock is the rock that lifts you. You dis, uh, you reject Him and deny Him, and He's the rock that crushes you. And now Paul is going to go into Romans 10, and he's going to talk to us about how the Israelite people were given that rock, and instead of believing on Him, they stumbled. Alright, so look what it says. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites. Alright. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, would Paul know anything about zeal? What is zeal? Like a show of love almost. Okay. It's a it's a, it's an, a passion to drive within us to do something. Yes. yes. Right? And of y'all uh, in here have a zeal for exercise, I do not. I do not like to run. I hate running. I do not have a zeal at all to run. But some people do. And every morning, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to work. It's going to be about 4.30 in the morning. I'm going to be standing out on a dock unloading a truck, and I'm going to see a group of guys come running by with shorts on. it's going to be freezing cold out there. <coughs> hard around, and they're going to be running down the street at 5 one the for the sun ever comes up because they have a zeal for running right so a zeal a passion would you say that the pharisees had a zeal about them yes you better believe it they made sure that everybody in their town knew that they were the most holy people in town they dressed the dress they walked the walk they talked the talk unfortunately they didn't believe it was all an external zeal paul was a pharisee did ha- did paul have a zeal for the righteousness of the law. No. You better believe he did. Remember what he said? He said, I'm a Pharisee, Pharisee. Yes, yeah. he of he the Pharisee. Right Before his law. conversion, did he have a zeal for the law of Moses? Yes. Yes. yes, enough to kill Christians who he thought were preaching against him. It
1: was kind of like, look at me, I believe, instead of look at yeah. him, I believe. Yeah.
0: He had a zeal about him. Paul had a zeal about him. So when he writes about zeal and the Israelites, he's speaking from experience, is he not? So what is he saying about the Israelites? He said, I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, the Sanhedrin, the top 70 guys in in Israel, they would have been able to quote you the first five books of the Bible by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They could have quoted the whole book. So, they have zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, did they know the Old Testament Scriptures? Yeah. They could repeat them to you word by word. You, you know, there are people that can actually quote the whole Bible. Like people that have memorized every bit of the Bible. Hey, there are Muslims out there that can quote the whole Quran to you. Word for word. They have a zeal for knowledge. Or they have a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So these people were zealous. They were religious as you want to ever meet. But their zeal was not according to knowledge. And what did it say that that zeal caused? They did not know about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Okay. Not knowing about God's righteousness. Do you think that those Pharisees could have quoted the Ten Commandments to you? Yes. You better believe it. Yes. Do you think that they were... At the temple on the day of Yom Kippur? Yes. yes. Did they miss any religious holidays? No. Did they miss any prayer times? No. Were they at every service? Yes. Did they pray five times a day? Yes. Yeah. They were religious. It says for not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? They had Jesus even chatted him. He said, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. Remember He told him that? Alright, well what does that mean? How many of y'all... I'm, don't turn here. I'm going to read it for you. How many of y'all remember this? In the book of John. He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. That's John chapter 1. Who is it that came to His own? Who's the first people that Jesus presented the kingdom to? The nation of Israel. He came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. Now remember the Romans 9 passage? I lay a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and the one who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Why would they not believe in this rock? Because they had a rock of their own. Instead of believing on God's righteousness... And Jesus is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. The fleshly manifestation of the righteousness of God. The book of Moses and all of those sacrifices and all of those teachings in the Old Testament are all pointing us to the perfect will of God. And Jesus is the fleshly manifestation of the perfect will of God. What did Jesus say that the greatest commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all of the law and the prophets. That's what He said, right? Well, the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with loving God. No other God before me. No idols. Don't take His name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and your father, don't covet people's things. What do you think all of those have to do with loving who? Others. Loving your neighbor. So the Ten Commandments sum up the Great Commandment, or the Great Commandment sums up the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus sums up everything in the Old Testament. What does it look like to love your neighbor? Look at Jesus. What does it look like to love God? Look at Jesus. But what were the Pharisees saying? If you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor, look at what we do. If you want to know what it looks like to love God, look at what we do. You see the difference? They're seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. And anytime we begin to start seeking to establish our own righteousness... Whose righteousness do we walk away from? From His. The moment that I begin to attribute something in my salvation to something I do is the moment that I begin to take glory away from God and give it to myself. Now, I want to address something that Elton and I were talking about the other day because we're going to get to it in just a minute. It says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Right? And that is very true. Because the confessions of our mouth are really an expression of what we believe in our hearts. Out of the mouth flows the issues of life, right? So if I have a new regenerate heart and I truly believe Him, that Lordship is going to be confessed out of my mouth. But my confession, my conversation is not just what I say, it's what I do and what I think as well. The Pharisees expressed a righteousness to the people around them that they love God and love their neighbor. But what, what did Jesus say? No, you don't. You love yourself. And you're cloaking it in a, a religiousness, a, a love for God. Alright, so he says this. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Alright, so it says, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which, which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Alright, if I could follow the law perfectly, would it be good to live that way? Of course. say, yes, amen. The law is the expressed and written will of God. To not steal, to not kill, to not commit adultery, to love God and no other gods before Him. That is His command and desire for your life. So the law is perfect. The problem is, we're not. And instead of the law making steps to help me to get to heaven, the law actually puts a barrier between me and God and says, you'll never get there. Because if you offend in one act, you're guilty of what? All. So the law is not steps to get us to God. If the law was steps to get us to God, then whose righteousness would it be that gets me to heaven? Me. Look at me. I didn't lie. I didn't smoke. I didn't cheat. I didn't do bad things. See me? Me, me, me. It's not steps to get me to heaven. The law is actually a standard of righteousness that none of us can ever achieve. So it winds up being a barrier that crushes us in guilt and shame. Why do you think the law frustrates you? i got news for you guys. If you truly are in this room today, and you truly are a child of God, and God is conforming you to His image through the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit, as you continue to grow and conform more to the image of Christ, you're not going to get better and better. You're going to realize how, how much is wrong, still wrong with you. The sin that you have in your life is going to become more and more evident. Because that's what the law does. The law points us to the things that are wrong with us. Why? Yeah, why, why Why? would God, in His grace, give us this law that constantly tells me how bad I am and points out all my flaws?
1: To show us that all of our righteousness, no matter what we did, we cannot. our righteousness is filthy rags to Him. Whatever we thought that we could do to get to Him.
0: So the law, the intent of the law, is to get me to turn away from self and turn to Him. That makes sense? Yeah. Now, is the law bad? No. And, matter of fact, once you become a child of God, once you have been given this new heart, once you were dead in trespass and trespassed to sin, but God has made you alive, now the law becomes a delight to you. Instead of being something that condemns you, <laughs> it's something that reminds you of God's will for your life. It gives you that map and that road, that path to walk by. You see? So, he says this. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Right? What does it mean to ascend? So, don't think that the righteousness based on faith says this. Do this and do this and do this and you can get to heaven. That's not a righteousness of faith. That's a righteousness of works. And how many times do you have to fail in that test of righteousness of work before you're condemned to hell? Once. So don't say to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So, it's not your works of righteousness and it's not your suffering and dying that save you. It's not you climbing your way to heaven or suffering for the name of God so that you can get to heaven. That's a righteousness of works. But what does it say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, the word is near you. What does it mean to say that God is uh, omnipresent? He's everywhere. And in in what sense is he present with us here in this room tonight? He's in us through his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in this room at work because anywhere that the Word of God is being proclaimed, the Spirit of God is at work. Right? So, in the same way that on the last day, God is going to send forth His angels and they're going to separate the sheep and the goats. Where are the goats going to go? To hell. Where are the sheep going to go? They're going to inherit the kingdom. Right? The word angel means messenger. All right? So, there is really, physically, literally going to be a last day when God is going to send out His angels to separate true believers and non-believers. But in a spiritual sense, that is happening right now in this room. Those who preach the Word of God are messengers. What do we say the word messenger means? An angel, messenger. I'm not an angel, by the way, God, I'm human flesh. I'm not a spirit. But God has given me the task of preaching and declaring His truth. And what is that truth doing? It's working in accord with the Holy Spirit. To separate the sheep from the goats. And who's doing that work? God. God. So, how does the Gospel message work? Who is the Gospel to be proclaimed to? What does the Word of God tell us to be? Who are we supposed to proclaim the Word to? Preach to all nations. To everyone. So the the call, the, the declaration of the Gospel is universal. But those who respond to it is not universal, is it? No. Some believe.
1: Some don't.
0: Some reject. Right. What makes a person believe? And this is where our, our discussion last week that we had goes to. Was it my free will that made me believe on God?
1: No. Well, God made it happen. You took with yeah. your free will and made the choice to accept Him into your heart and believe
0: that He died on the cross. My free will is always going to do what my nature tells it to do. Yeah. What
1: well, Your what?
0: My nature. Yeah, my free will is driven by my nature, who I am, isn't it not? It is. All right? So what the Bible actually yeah. teaches us is anyone who is dead and trespassing in sin, well, here. they don't have a free will. Now, somebody will argue with me and they'll say something like this. Well, God doesn't want robots. God don't want robots. Well, that's very true. But those who are dead and trespassing in sin are robots to sin and death. They obey it. And every one of you in this room, if you are the product of addiction, you know that. If you are truly addicted to something, there's no free will involved. You do what your God tells you to do. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were destra- dead in trespasses of sin, made us alive together. In Christ, we have salvation. So, you were a dead, and you were a robot, you were a, a puppet to sin. And God reached down and cut the strings. And said, no, you're free to be who I created you to be. You see, He sets us free and gives us a new will. And that will isn't aligned with His will, not ours. You see how that works? Absolutely. So, let me make a couple more applications. Let's finish this text, and I want to make a couple more applications. We'll wind up. If you confess with your mouth Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is a chiasm. It's, it's, a, it's, too, it's a line. It says something, then it says something else. Then it's going to repeat what it said in the middle and go back to what it said at the beginning. Look what It says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. If you confess with your what? Mouth. Mouth, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes and with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. (coughs) So my confession expresses the result, which is salvation. What does a saved person do? They call him... Lord, when I call him Lord, what am I saying? What does it mean to call somebody Lord? Abraham, Sarah called her Abraham Lord, right? And they, many women in today's world would call their husband Lord because what does it mean to call him Lord? He's the ruler. He's the master. master, yep. How many of y'all know when you were little kids said something like this? I'm not doing that, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Yeah, all did it. yeah, of course we did. And a lot of times it was to our parents. But the reality is, according to the Ten Commandments, our parents are the boss of us. So me saying you're not the boss of me is a rebellion to the commandments of God. Why did I do that? Because in my heart, even as a child, right? Uh, vipers and diapers is what Vodi Balkan ba- 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 calls <laughs>
1: it.
0: Vipers and diapers. My rebellion to God... I just watched one of the cutest videos you ever want to see on Facebook this morning. A little girl, she had been eating food out the dog food bowl, and her parents uh. called her, and she stood right there for two minutes and lied to them and literally denied it she did it. Had dog food in her hand, on her teeth, and she <laughs> literally sat there for two minutes lying and saying she didn't do it. No, she, no, she did it? No, she didn't. Huh? That's exactly what she said. But the point I'm trying to make is this. If you call Him Lord... What you are confessing is that He is the boss of me. He is my Master. I'm willing to kneel and prostrate myself before Him and do what He tells me to do. And the only person that can truly do that, the only person that can truly call Him Lord and mean it, is one who has a new heart. Do you remember what Jesus said? On that day, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name? Did we not... Right? What do they call Him? Lord. And you know what He said? I don't know you. you. And that know is the word yada. It's the word that, that Adam knew his wife Eve. It means that there's an intimacy between the master and the slave. An intimate knowledge. Okay? And so who does God know in this world? Everybody. But... His children, he knows on an intimate, and personal level. There's a spiritual bond there that he doesn't have with the whole world. So when Paul is saying here, you confess with your, you believe in your heart. The only person that can believe in their heart is someone who has a new heart, mm-hmm. and the only person who can confess Lord and mean it is someone who has that new heart. So when Paul is saying here, if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart you will be saved. What He's doing is He's giving us a description of what a saved person does. Not a prescription for being saved, but a description of what it looks like to be saved. Because if all I have to do is confess with my mouth that He is Lord, that's something I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And if I'm dependent on that confession, I'm dependent on me. Mm -hmm. Why is He Lord? Because He is my Creator. He is my God. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. He's my Father. Yeah. He's my... Christ is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my seal. That's why I call Him Lord. And so He says, uh, for the Scriptures say, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord what will be saved. So that whoever is a description, not a prescription. Those who are truly belong to Him will call upon Him. So let me finish with a couple more things. Uh, a couple more quotes here. <clears throat> um, faith. This is a quote from a guy named Jeremy Smith. He says as Faith is not the belief we have been saved. It is instead the trusting of oneself to Christ in order to be saved. Let me say that again. Faith is not the belief we have been saved. It is instead the trusting of oneself to Christ in order to be saved. Mm -hmm. All right? So, let's make a life application and then close with a prayer. For those of you who are in this room today and you are struggling with addiction, one of the reasons that we struggle with addiction is because it is our will to be high. It's exactly what I want to do okay you can say oh I don't want to be high well you just don't want to pay the bills you don't want your local dope man looking for you because you owe him money you don't want the law after you you don't want to get in trouble you don't want to get sick and die but you want to be high and your will overrides your common sense your will overrides everything you do exactly what we do what we want to do we do what we will the only way for me to overcome addiction It's for my will to be changed. And that is not within my power. If my want to is what keeps me from doing drugs, then who am I dependent on to beat my addiction?
1: Myself.
0: Myself. But if my want to ever becomes God's will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If He puts within me His will, then who am I dependent on then? Yeah. him and the reason that I can overcome my addiction guys, listen I still struggle with my with addictive thought patterns even to this day I've been sober for I guess about 12 or 14 years now but somebody can come riding by me smoking a joint in a car and I can tell you what grade of weed it is <laughs> Like I, you know, I still think um, I, I dipped snuff for almost 30 years, 35 years. I chewed the bong for 35 years. I can walk into a gas station this very day, today, and, still taste it. and I can look and see them cans behind the counter, and my mouth will go to water. I There's still those sure. patterns in my thoughts and my process. The difference now is, is that God has given me a, a, a new want to. I want to be sober more than I want to be high. I want to be pure and holy more than I want to be lustful. Mm -hmm. Do I still struggle with lust? Yes, every day. Do I lose sometimes? Yes. Almost on the daily. I lose when I struggle with lust. But the difference is, the child of God struggles the child of this world, the one who is dead in trespass and sin, the one who is walking according to the powers of this world, the spirit of disobedience, those people don't struggle with their desires. They embrace them.
1: Mm -hmm. You're aware of it now.
0: Right. So, in the same way that if I'm depending upon myself to beat my addictions, I will more than likely Relapse. In the same way, if if you are depending upon something in yourself for your salvation, then you will never be sure. But the moment you put all of your trust in Him and what He has done, that's the Gospel. The law is due. The Gospel says done. So we trust in him and him alone. Does that make sense? All right, let's close with a prayer. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us together. I do pray that um, us talking through your word and talking about the great gift of your salvation will encourage us um, to die to self and to live for you. I pray that you will help each and every one of us in this room. Every one of us that hears this message to continue to be conformed to your image um, by trusting in you and, and not ourselves. I pray if there be a man or a woman here today who has been struggling with trusting you, that, that you Holy Spirit would break open their heart and and show them your salvation. Allow them to know what it really means to have a new heart and a, and a gift of eternal life. Um, so be with us now. Take these words. Bear them deep in our heart that we might not sin against you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.